My guest today is Andy West. I'm retired now. My training was originally in physics, and I spent uh, about 40 years in the electronics industry, mostly on the software side. But for decades, I've been very interested in um, originally evolutionary processes, which led to so cultural and social evolution, and eventually, how do cultures work? And by cultures, I mean religions or ideologies. And uh, so that's been occupying my time for the last 15 years or so. And, um, and eventually I stumbled upon the fact that there is a culture operating in the climate change domain. All right. And today we're going to be talking about your book, The Grip of Culture, right? Subtitle, The yep. Social Psychology of Climate Change Catastrophism. And I've been uh, reading up on that, reading that book and uh, a lot of good stuff in there. So where do you want to start there? Um, I guess, I guess we should start for, because uh, I guess we'll have a general audience with, with what it isn't because um, quickly people make assumptions about books, uh, books that have climate change in the, in the title or whatever. And what it isn't is it, it doesn't go into anything to do with physical climate change at all. And, um, uh, and nothing to do with the positions of the science really either, like the various, the skeptics, the mainstream, they, uh, you know, whatever. It's a purely a work of social psychology, but that social psychology happens to be independent of what's going on in the physical climate or the science. It has long since traveled its own road, shall we say, it's emergent. And so the book doesn't need to refer to the physical climate situation or the state of climate science to describe the, the social psychology of the domain because it's, it has long ago become independent. So it does describe the social psychology of that domain. And it, it describes it um, from the kind of from the roots up which why, why do people get involved in ideologies and religions? And we've done that for hundreds of thousands of years you know, evidence for religions goes back. And, it, and it's, a, it's a behavioral thing. It, it's deep, deep in our evolution. And it's, it's a mechanism to keep groups together because humans in big groups survive better than when they aren't. And it's the group glue. And it, and it's, it bypasses intelligence, sadly. So, so uh, that's, why I see, that's why cultures often seem so rational because they literally are. This, this stuff goes around our rationality. And um, and they have uh, signatures that you can you can look for. All right. And I think I heard you say elsewhere that there might be two hundred definitions of culture. But is there? Can we think religion or ideology when we're first getting into this and get the basic uh, thrust? Or what should we do? Yeah. To, yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's there's loads and loads of definitions of culture, even in academia. Never mind in colloquial language. But yeah, what I mean is a cultural entity. So a bounded social movement or uh, a religion is the best example because they're all the oldest ones. Uh, you, you can kind of draw a bound around it. You know where that religion is. You know who believes in it and who doesn't. You know, they all wear funny clothes or whatever it happens to be. You know, if it's, if it's communism, they all hate capitalism and so on and so forth. So um, it's, it's a bounded social movement. It, it has very specific characteristics. It has a consensus through the believers about what is true. And... Um, Another thing that's an interesting characteristic of it is that the main narrative is always wrong. The main narrative has to be wrong in order for the thing to fulfill its purpose, which is to glue everybody together. Because if it was, if it were, if it approached the truth too nearly, 
then it, it can be questioned by reason and by logic, which could slowly dismantle it. So in fact, the further away it is from reality, the better. So for instance, uh, in Christianity, um, uh, you've, you've got um, Jesus uh, died to save us uh, fr from our sins or something like that. It's, it's a fairy story. In, um, uh, in communism, you've got capitalism is evil. Well, that's a fairy story too. It might be bad, bits might be bad, bits might be good, but it's not pure evil. And in climate catastrophism, you've got, there is um, uh, an imminent, which is to say decades, climate, global climate catastrophe. And the mainstream science says, does not say this is true. And not, neither does the skeptic science either. All the science positions do not say that's true. So the cultural narrative fits the bill, it's, it's false. And they're all false. They're all fairy tales. And that's that, the cultures, the way the culture works relies on them being false. Right. So um, in your book, you have this fascinating thing about uh, just thinking about Professor Caruso being marooned for 35 years and then being told that there was a uh, climate change narrative. What did he say? Oh, he was told the whole world is now hugely worried about man-made climate change. Yes. Had been spending trillions on the issue, but knowing nothing yeah. else, he could come up with a list of 24 things uh, about this uh, the narrative. You want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, pe people who, who normally research these these things would be familiar with a lot of the characteristics and and uh, you know how these characteristics sort of show themselves in society. And it's only bias in the social sciences that prevents people from seeing all these things. Um, so um, if, if this Professor Crusoe on his island was stand up so long, he's not biased about climate change. He's never heard of it. So when the, when the sailors pick him up, he, he, he knows instantly that all these things they come out with in describing it are, are cultural things. So like the consensus provokes statements that are uh, all, all explainable, uh, indisputable. You know, it's classic, classic culture. Um, there'll be adora, ad adoration of certain authority figures, uh, possibly to the state of even profit status. So we have Al Gore and we have Greta Thunberg and, and a raft of others. Um, key information uh, that uh, to do with the cultural narrative will be uh, guarded or, or Restricted, uh, you know, so like the climate gate thing, uh, when they were trying to restrict information, um, there'll be there'll be a approval ratings or a hierarchy in society of those who are uh, the cool guys and those who are the bad guys, and you know, and and, and associated with them those these activities. So you know, uh, being vegan is cool, and eating meat is not cool, uh, you know, and. Uh, there is demonization of anyone who questions the narrative and. Um, so uh, there's a whole chapter on how uh, the modern term denierism is, is, a, is, a, is a misframing and um, its main purpose is to, is to demonize people without it looking like demonization. It, it looks like you're trying, instead you're saying, well, I don't believe in science or I don't believe in something like that. It's just straight demonization. And um, so a whole raft of these things, undermining, undermining morals, undermining the law, uh, so on and so forth. And so the professor would know all these things and he would, he would instantly say, hey, there's a culture operating here. But the current social sciences are, um, they, they don't, they, they're not investigating it in that manner because uh, typically they're, they're biased by, they, they, they think that global climate catastrophe is an output of hard science. 
So it's not it's not that they're lying, they're not deliberately trying to avoid the thing, they're not, but it's a bias. And and in, in thinking that that is the case, then they don't investigate it as a culture. They, in fact, most of the time in climate psychology, we spend trying to figure out why deniers deny and why they're all horrible and nasty. And <laughs> and uh, which is, you know, a complete waste of time because they're they're not denying most most um reaction against climate change in publics is uh, innate skepticism so it's instinctive it's not rational and it's because people have correctly picked up that it's being driven by a culture and we have an instinct we know we shouldn't we should know when uh, cultures are driving things um and the reason we have that ability is so that we can throw out um competitive cultures to our own and uh, in our own culture, it turns that ability off. So we can't see inside one that we believe in, but we can see other ones that try and, uh, and that's what that's what turns the public off. I think you have mentioned elsewhere that you had no real opinion on climate change until you saw an inconvenient truth. And then you found all sorts of elements of culture in there rather than science. Do I have that right? You do. Uh, it really smacked me in the face. I mean, I, I, I wasn't... I mean, I kind of knew about climate change back in, in 2006 and, and before, and I'd heard it come out. I didn't have any reason to, to disbelieve it. I, I, I wasn't particularly interested because I, I was interested in other things. And, and that, but I thought at some point, well, it's, this is going to get big. We'll have to do something at some point. But I didn't really um, uh, investigate it much or anything. And, and um, anyway, somebody gave me a, a present, um, which was a CD of uh, An Inconvenient Truth. And, uh, after a, after a while, I, I watched this, and um, it, I was absolutely gobsmacked. It struck me straight away. It wasn't the climate information in there. I didn't know whether it's true or false. I didn't really care. What struck me is that it's absolutely packed full of, of emotive cultural uh, memes and cultural language, and it, it, to the point that whatever was being said about the science will be completely overwhelmed by the the emotion in the in the in the message and they you know they. they Effectively, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, an apo- apocalypse uh, narrative, in, in essence. And I thought, how on earth, because I was interested in these things, cultures, I thought, how on earth has <laughs> been one staring me in the face all this time? I didn't even know it was there. So, uh, so I, I then began to be very interested. And that's, that's when I first started investigating the situation. But I, didn't, I haven't investigated anything to do with, with physical climate change or, or even climate science and the various positions that held. I, I have to know enough. You need to know the furniture of an domain before you can investigate the, the, the psychology behind it. So I, I, I had to get familiar with the arguments and so on. So having a degree in physics is at least enough to, to, uh, to, to make me familiar with the arguments. So I, I could I know what the furniture of the, the domain is, but it's not the physics and uh, the actual uh, climate science that interests me. It's the psychology. And, and it quite quickly became apparent that the, the the psychology that in in mass publics which we can measure because there's there's endless amounts of uh, surveys on publics so which is great because we have loads of free data which tells us what's going on and it, it quite quickly became apparent that the, 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 the psychology of publics around the globe is completely independent of what's happening in science and what's happening in the physical climate it has just gone its own way just like a religion or a you know or a, an ideology and, it, and it's following all those characteristics. And if you like, it's, it's, it's not really connected to what happens in the climate anymore. That's kind of completely secondary. Uh, you've mentioned that uh, you've seen examples of maybe history not repeating itself, but maybe rhyming. There's this whole idea now we can 
kill cattle to uh, prevent the apocalypse. There was this deal in 1856 in Africa where they actually did kill the cattle. You, do you want to mention uh, that incident? Yes, yes. There was um, it, it was um, a, a, a nation called the Koza in South Africa, um, and uh, they they hadn't been colonized. They were kind of next to the, the main colonization phase, um, and they still lived independently. And their economy was based on cattle, and um, but they were under pressure from uh, the colonies, and also under a lot more pressure when a, um, a lung disease took their cattle. And um, and so um, as societies can sometimes get, they were all a bit worried and what was going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of p- political rivalry as well between various chiefs in this uh, in these Koza. And anyway, that's often when people turn to religion and a number of prophets surfaced. And um, these prophets had a religion that was a, a cross between Christianity that had come from Europe and some native religions. And there was a sequence of these prophets and they ended with one called Nonkuas, who was a 16 year old girl. Um, and she had more credibility. A lot of the other prophets before had been um, adults and some of them had been outright warmongers who said, you know, we should, we should attack the Europeans, blah, blah, blah. But she, she, she wasn't a warmonger. She was innocent. She was a 16 year old girl. And she said, Everybody in the Kosa nation has to slaughter their cattle. They have to destroy their seed stores, uh, pull down their enclosures, and, and build new ones. And if and only if and only if this is done, then there'll be a, a, a new a renewal of the whole culture, and new cattle and new seed will magically come from uh, somewhere. <laughs> Not quite sure where. Um, heaven, I, I suppose, and um, and everything will be great. And um, not all the chiefs believed her, but she was. She had an uncle who was very high in the hierarchy, and uh, she she got the word of the main king eventually. And and most most of the nation, by and large, they followed this advice. They they slaughtered all their cattle, they uh, ditched all their seed, they destroyed their enclosures, blah blah blah. And surprise, surprise, the whole nation collapsed. There was you know tens of thousands of people starved, um, and you know those who who got through it eventually were dispersed. Um, they, they, they had to go and uh, work in the European colonies for wages because their, you know, their land was, they couldn't get started on their land anymore. They had no capital. Uh, so that the whole nation effectively destroyed itself through this religion. And, and it's, it's what's called a, a millenarian religion. That they, they, it's the name for those things that they, they, they predict a, gr- a great change and they want to distance themselves from everything uh, current and, and climate change has definitely got a, a strong millenarian wing, of, of which Greta is a, originally was also a 16 year old girl prophet. And one of the giveaways of it is, um, you know, if you if you suggest a solution that might combat what climate change is supposed to be about, like, like nuclear, then the millenarian millenarian wing of the of the, the this culture climate extraction, they reject new, nuclear too because what they're really after is the renewal of the whole society. They want everything's got to be refreshed, everything's got to be renewed. We cannot have anything that smells of the old society. And nuclear is technology; it's, it's bad, you know. It's so, yeah, a, a good test of of how the millenarian wing of climate testimony is doing relative to the, what you might call the more central win is is how bad is anti-nuclear feeling and, and it's pretty bad in some place i mean germany are turning theirs off despite being in, in deep trouble with regarding their uh, energy supply after uh, the, the problems with russia and with the cost of that 
and um, they're, they, you know, they're turning off their final power stations as we speak, <coughs> nuclear, and they don't intend to ever turn them back on. And that's, that is a millenarian response. Um, so, um, there's this idea that the culture does what's best for the culture and not for, for humans. So do you think wind and solar are their preferred solution because they're not actually a solution and it keeps the problem going? Something oh, perverse absolutely. like that is going on. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. They, um, the culture does promote its own interests. I mean, obviously, um, it, it, this can mean, like with the COSA, it could, it could just end up destroying the culture because it's destroyed its hosts. So um, there are mechanisms to, to potentially stop cultures doing that, but unfortunately, they don't always work. And they, they can take out their own host and um, uh, and they do opt for solutions that will keep the culture going. So have endless resource, time, effort, and, and narrative, especially to everybody talking about it. Cultures thrive on emotive narratives, which which is all to do with renewables. All, everywhere you look, there's renewables. It's soaking up money, it's soaking up effort, it's soaking up narratives. Everybody's talking about it. It provides bugger all um, amount of the actual power, and and it probably couldn't ever be a solution because it's 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 destabilizing grids and so on and so forth. Whereas nuclear actually could be a solution, and so uh, the, the culture is very much behind renewables. It can it cannot never it can never work. If culture if culture picked a solution that would work, that would kill the culture. The culture is never going to do that of, of its own back. There might be rational people fighting the culture or who partially believe, but if it was all left to the pure culture, it was never going to implement a solution that would kill itself. So cultures never do that. <clears throat> you have a great quote here. I'm going to quote you. Uh, uh, effectively, wind turbines are closer to cathedrals than they are to a power station. I think uh, James Dellingpole calls them eco-crucifixes. There's, do you want to talk about that concept? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Eco crucifixes is is, uh, is quite a good one, but it, it, the problem is you you can you can be more emotive. You've got to try and avoid being as, as emotive in return. But I, a cathedral is less emotive, but I, they essentially are. And so, for instance, um, cultures have certain patterns which you can detect with attitudes. But those patterns, because policy tends to follow attitudes of each country, you can also figure out. So, for instance, the biggest single predictor of renewables uh, across nations is actually uh, national religiosity. It, there's an anti-correlation. So, the, so uh, the, the more religious a country is, the less renewables it will have. And, and this, is, this is because there is an interaction between climate catastrophism and religion. It's a dual interaction, so it's a bit hard to describe. But as an outcome of this, then you can use national religiosity to measure um, how many how, how much renewables a nation will have, and it's it's pretty good. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty good predictor. Um, but, but that is bonkers if you think about it. It should it should be dependent on things like, well, the climate of, or the, the climate or climate exposure of the nation, maybe, or on on technical issues. I mean, just one irony out of this is that um, by by a historical accident, irreligion, so uh, atheism, if you like, irreligion has spread outwards from very cloudy nations in um, in Northwest Europe. And as it spread outwards, it's, it, with some exceptions, it's tended to have gone to sunnier climes. So um, th there happens to be um, a correlation between cloudiness and religion. 
And because there's also an interaction between climate catastrophism and religion, this, this horrid historical accident means there's far more solar deployed in, in cloudier countries. The commitment to solar is far higher in those countries than it is in sunny countries. You know, it's like, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect if it was rationality or technical issues that were actually determining how solar was um, deployed. But it's, it's essentially the same for, for, for wind and solar. It, it, it's got a complete cultural pattern across nations. It has no, there's no rationality to it at all. <clears throat> Do you want to talk about uh, briefly what the central point in your book is about the correlation between um, religiosity in a country and how they answer the question of do you think there's going to be a climate catastrophe isn't that what it's about or part of yeah yeah, yeah the, the heart of the book is is measurements um uh measurements of a of a culture and yes it, but you can measure a culture by asking questions in lots of different ways and and two of the main ways you can ask questions are unconstrained so you are you asked a question like are you going to be harmed by climate change? You know, or, or how serious do you think climate change is? It you know, is it, is it not that serious? Really serious? Extremely serious? So these are these are unconstrained questions. You know, do you think the UN will be able to fight climate change? That's an unconstrained question. And then there are constrained questions. So um, uh, what I call reality constrained questions. It's where the question is asked in a manner which forces you to try and connect it to reality in some way. So like, what priority would you give fighting climate change against say, I don't know, uh, you know, money for education or the economy or whatever, or <clears throat> so, um, or how much would you pay to, um, to, to, you know, for this climate change related policy and how many, how many dollars per month would you pay? These are two ways of introducing reality. And the really interesting thing is that, um, uh, you, you get completely different responses across nations um, for uh, unconstrained questions as you do for reality-constrained questions. The unconstrained ones correlate really, really strongly with religion. And they, um, so for the, for the climate change most endorsing, so the, the ones that you, know, you go endorse climate change with your answers, those answers are very low in secular countries and really high in, in, uh, in religious countries. And the climate change most of, uh, endorsing responses for reality constrained questions. So, like, yeah, I'm going to give you a high priority or whatever. That they're quite high in uh, in secular nations, but extremely low in um, uh, in religious nations. So you have almost a cross pattern um, these, with these two. And yeah, and that yeah, they're both measuring climate change most endorsing responses. So how can that be? And the and the reason is to do with the fact that that uh, cultures are fundamentally hypocritical, but there's um there's a relationship between religion and climate catastrophism. Um, so, for instance, all the religious leaderships have statements on climate change, and it's pure catastrophe narrative. There's a there's state, there's a there's an appendix in the book that that shows all those for every religion, and that's what happens is that makes their flocks, if you like, and uh, much more comfortable with this narrative, and that's why you get. Um, uh, that's why you get positive answers in religious countries for unconstrained questions, because is climate change going to harm you? Yeah, yeah, my religious guy says the climate change is going to harm me, so it's going to harm me. But when it switches to reality-constrained questions, because these people are religious, and so far the alliance with climate trust hasn't drilled down into their really deep values yet, they, they flip out of the alliance. They actually say, no, this thing is 
I'm not going to give this thing a priority over my, my religious values or what my religious values say I should spend money on. So it completely goes into reverse. And, um, and all the people who really, really, so you might get, you know, uh, do you think climate change is going to, is going to harm you and yours in a religious country, a really religious country you might get 60% will say, yeah. And then you say, well, how, how much priority will you give it? Uh, will we give it, let's say, priority over the economy or in the schools? Like less than 10% of people say yes. That's a huge change. And in the in the secular countries, it's it's in reverse. It's not quite as strong. But the ones who say it's going to harm me and mine are actually really low because the secular countries don't actually buy into the the emotive side of it. But they actually they actually give it more because they believe in science and this thing says it's science. Then they actually give it more um, for less emotive narratives that we had to constrain. They'll give it a higher priority as against, um, say, education or other threats or whatever. So, and this is a classic, classic cultural pattern. And and asking these questions of a culture. I mean, we 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 need, unfortunately, we have to use religion to see climate catastrophism because we you you need another culture to see it. But for religion, we we can actually perform the same function of religion itself. So we can actually ask. Um, religiously orientated questions about religious values and measure those against religiosity. So effectively, we're in, instead of interrogating climate catastrophism, um, we're then interrogating religion. And you get the same patterns. Um, so you get the exact, so, so in, in other words, you've got the same patterns from climate catastrophism, i.e. These, um, these crisscross patterns that you get if you interrogate religion. And, and you get them because they're both cultures. And um, so, and not only that, the entire of academia has completely missed these patterns. There is a, there's a whole literature that searches for um, what's called social predictors to climate change. So like, you know, age, uh, sex, education, but also more complex things at the national level as well as the individual level. So how, how many civil liberties a nation has, for instance? I mean, I kid you not, one of the, one of the things that's been tried is how many climate scientists there are in each nation. You know, it's just unbelievable. And, and they've been doing this such a long time that there's really complicated statistical techniques now and loads and loads of these variables. And they still have, even in groups, they still have very low predictive power, not, not usually getting beyond 20%. <laughs> but the single natural predictor of uh, national religiosity can, for some of these attitudes, you can get up to 80%. And, it, and for, the, for, the, for the, the ones where we expect linearity, it's very rarely beyond 35%. And that, that's, that's more or less where the, the entire of academia stops and, and where this single predictor begins. So it's been entirely missed. And the reason it's been missed is, again, bias. That nobody's looking for a culture. Otherwise, they would have spotted it really easily. So do you think anybody from within the uh, climate cult culture, do you think uh, they'll read your book and learn anything or they'll just dismiss it anyway and you're mostly going to be speaking to people outside of the culture? Or how does it look? That's that's a great question. Um, one I've talked to my editor about because um, in theory, um, if if everybody in the the academic field that that was looking at what, what drove attitudes to climate change. And indeed, all the mainstream pollsters that did all these surveys knew what was in this book. They, they, it's, a, it's, it's just such a radical improvement on everything they're getting. You'd, you'd say, well, really, they, how could they carry on in the old way once they knew this was true? But, you know, but, the, but the problem is, if, if the book gets smeared for you know, being a, a work of denial, although nobody will ever read it, 
So the fact that the this massive, I mean, it's almost the, the number of papers that are checking out attitudes to climate change. And um, I, I ought to mention, this, I, one thing I do agree with literal is that America is different because of the polarization uh, there. But so most of the stuff concentrates on outside of the US now, because inside the US, where it, all the work was before, it, it, you, get, you get polarization between Dan Libs and uh, Repcons. Um, and it turns out that that's cultural as well. Um, but um, to a first approximation, you don't need to know the climate culture is actually four cultures up being there. There's, there's retcons, demolids, religion, and climate catastrophism. But to a first approximation, it just looks like the first two. So people think it's political. And uh, so they don't need to acknowledge the climate catastrophism. But everywhere else outside of America, you, 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 you know, this is where the vast amount of um, complexity appeared. And I think probably we can show a diagram, um, the diagram, uh, the spaghetti diagram, I call it. <laughs> okay. Where that, that's, the, that's, the, that's how the literature thinks um, the, 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 the domain is in terms of influence. It's, so it's a, it's, a, it's a pile of spaghetti about hundreds of influences uh, that, that map all over the place and it's really difficult to work out. And the equivalent model for me is the two circles at the panel B at the bottom. Okay, you've got religion, you've got climate change. You predict one from the other. So you get rid of all these plated spaghetti, and you you just you just left with that simple model. But I do, what it comes down to is is how how will people in those in that academic industry or in the pollsters? I mean, I've tweeted some at them. How will they ever access those facts? Because the, because it's so the thing about cultures is, is they, they they prevent you reading information in the first place by smearing it by saying you know it, it comes from these guys these guys are bad uh, it, you know so, so the problem is would they ever read it I, I would defy anybody who does read it I mean they might they might still say my explanations are rubbish fine but even if even if my explanations are rubbish this this is really simple data linear CNEs only is like um, it comes from loads and loads of completely independent sources. Anybody can type it into uh, to Excel and push the button and get these correlation and anti-correlation values out. Anybody could do it, like a first-year student could do it. And so, and and this, and it's got it has correlation values that massively exceed these super complex models with their massive statistics. How I defy anybody to say they might disagree with my ideas, but you cannot read that and go back and say that carry on trying to measure it the old way. You just can't. So, uh, what are the biggest uh, specific takeaways for people of us outside of the climate cult to try to end it and uh, bring sanity back to, to the world? What do you think? Uh, yeah, that's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, got, I've got some stuff in my chapter at the end, but the, the problem is cultures are really, really hard to stop. I mean, they're, I, I think... Um, it, it's far it's far worse, for instance, than I mean c conspiracies and and uh, petty power and control and greed. They can ride the back of a um, a, a culture, so you can see them, but they're not. It's not causal, and you're facing something far worse than a conspiracy, if you like, if you're facing a culture because they can subconsciously link billions of people. There's a billion Catholics, you know, and they can link that. There's no, there's no way a, con a conscious conspiracy can do it. It's way more powerful than that. And that's what makes it really, really hard. 
Um, everybody conspires to make everybody else blind in a culture, and that's why they might never read the book because they they all tell each other that it's really bad, even though it turns out none of them have ever read it. But they all think that somebody's read it, and it must be really bad. Um, and that's that's how they prevent uh, any awkward information getting out. And they are really, really, really difficult to 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 beat. But um, the one the one thing that that I mean, I I thought maybe they could, it could be shamed to death. So um, the, the very nasty culture in 1930s, you know, Germany and Central Europe, in the end, okay, there's a massive war, but in the end, there was still quite a lot of people believed in eugenics, which was its, 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 its equivalent for its, its reaching in science, if you like, that was its, its justification in science. And it was only when all the films came out of the camps that effectively that was shamed to death. You know, it took, it took a few years to fizzle out, but. It was shamed to death. Nobody wanted to believe it anymore because it was just too horrible. And I thought, well, could you shame climate? I mean, climate catastrophism to death. There is a lot of very embarrassing data. I mean, the you know, Michael uh, Moore's film, uh, which which we might regard as a, a heretical brand of the faith, if you like, because he believes very very much in climate catastrophe. He just doesn't believe that that stuff is ever going to solve it. And the stuff that came out about you know, how these things are destroying the environment and destroying children and destroying everything you practically think of and putting poison everywhere. You know, this is embarrassing. But um, so, but the, but the culture pretty much shrugged it off. It, it pretty much said, no, we're not going to listen to that. We're going to censor it. We're going to get rid of that guy, even though he was on their side. And and it hasn't really made a dent. I mean, no, you never hear of that film anymore, really. And it's, it's, it's practically something without tracing yet. It was a fundamental attack on on what is supposed to be the, 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 the biggest Satan for the salvation. So maybe even shaming it to death, you know, maybe it's shameless. So we can't find anything to shame it. So it's really tough. And the other thing that, that might is that cultures do, they do yield to reality. If they, if they didn't, even though their, their, their main narrative is completely fictional, they have a lot of buffers between that and reality. And so, they, they, because they do have to accommodate reality to some degree. If, if, if they didn't, they wouldn't still be around in that population. And so um, uh, if you present culture with real stuff, it gives as much as it has to, but no more. And that's why those reality-constrained trends on the grass, they go down and down and down, the stronger the reality gets. The culture gives what it has to, but no more. So you know, even, even before the, the war in Ukraine, then we already had an energy crisis and there was there is definite movement in in you know the population. The realities are becoming more clear. Um, it's getting harder, I think, for the culture to still say, yeah, we got to have net zero across the board. You know, when the when the war came along, it was even harder still. And I think it is giving ground, and it's giving ground because it has to. Because in the end, it, it can have an unreal narrative, but it can't it can't literally face reality down if reality chooses to to raise itself. But it will only retreat as much as it needs to. If it can back off enough to keep um, society going to not actually collapse, which is a possibility with the, with you know, if you, if you really did at net zero how the, the most ardent want it, then society would probably probably would collapse. But if it can back off sufficiently to keep society alive, but not let go of its believers, then that will at least force it to back off. And I think you know there are hard realities that are definitely going to force it to back off. The problem will be. Is it going to still keep its grasp on enough people and enough uh, to for it to not what we really would like for it to completely collapse? 
but that may not happen. You may just yield the ground it has to to stay alive. And that's more tricky because some rationality will be there. And yet every time it will it gets a chance, it will leap back in and push, push the boundaries again. And who knows how long it's gonna last, you know. I mean, I I I figured, you know, because it's picked science as its narrative, someday that's gonna <laughs> someday that's gonna go wrong, you would have thought. But 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 when? And and you know, you look at some of the big cultures, well, they've lasted for two millennia. And so and, and another thing you've got to worry about, in a way, it's a kind of worry, is it actually might have an upside. Which is, I find that even more worrying in a way, because it's so, it's so heavy at the moment. But, but cultures did have huge upsides. That's why we evolved to have them. Uh, it glues all these people together. But you know, what if, what if it's the case that because we are so complex now and our technology is so complex, that we using rationality, we simply aren't able to look, to look after the planet. And only by making it instinctive could we do so. Now that would be bad because uh, that means you that means you would need this instinct. So when it's more, maybe when climate change is more tamed, when it's backed off a bit, when it's realized that we can't have sackcloth and ashes for everybody, which which Christianity realized before it and all the others realized before it, and it's made some compromises. Maybe, maybe it would have an upside, and that upside might be something to it's instilled in as an instinct not to kill the planet. But I'm just speculating there. And right now, I can't see anything that's good about this culture. It's just real bad and very hard to defeat. So, <laughs> on a different podcast, you mentioned that there were one or more climate cultures in the past uh, in what is now Peru, and they ended badly. Can you talk about the details of what happened there? Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, they um uh they they had these um uh they're in the way of El Nino type events occasionally they and they they cause they this was in some valleys in Peru and there was big flooding in these valleys every time there's a an El Nino or something I can't remember whether it's El Nino or La Nina which way around it is but but they were subject to these things on a kind of not quite decadal basis but you know enough to be remembered by grandchildren that sort of that sort of area and these floods were you know, typically like wipe out, you know, one like a whole tribe at once or something. They were they're pretty serious, um, and they I think they practice farming on these uh, levels, going up hills, and so it, so it tends to get flooded out. So um, uh, anyway, so they they developed religions which effectively worshipped uh, the weather because they figured, well, you know, the weather is all powerful. It's the weather we live or die by the weather here. And you know, one of these one of these biggies comes along, we're we're toast. So, um, and they had they built these step pyramids that are typical of the South America type thing, and they're really huge. And um, and the, the elite lived at the top of this uh, pyramid, and the, the elite, you know, probably sacrificed uh, a few virgins or whatever to this religion and uh, that kind of thing, and and, and told the people, don't worry, it's going to be all right. You just keep paying us, and the elite will sort it for you. And you know, and the, and the reason that pyramids were so high is they're meant to look because they that they they knew that the weather um, came from the map because they see this cloud falling down the mountains and their lightning. So they they figured it. They tried to make man-made mountains to be nearer to the source of the weather, and that's why these things were so big. Anyway, um, it never worked, of course, because you, you know, and the next climate phase is going to come along, wipe them out, just like it always has. So, what tended to happen then is that the people got very angry and they marched up the, they marched up the pyramid and and killed all the elite and burnt all their things down, and said, right, well, we're going to have not any uh, any more of that. 
But unfortunately, what things then sort of recovered and people, you know, at least people really, really knew how to make bricks and pyramids. And so they were soon making bricks and pyramids again and the leap, you know, the whole thing went round again. And the archaeologists have seen that there's been a number of these burnings on the top of these pyramids. And I think it's because each time, you know, the same thing happened. They couldn't predict, they couldn't stop the weather and the weather. So anyway, you know, it looks like these guys basically were executed. Well, I don't think we should execute the current climate elite. We thought, well, fortunately, belong that, but we perhaps should not believe that they can change the weather. You know, I, as I say, my book's about psychology. It's not about climate change, so I don't, I don't know whether, you know, who's right in the physical climate debate. But I, I sure as hell know that if a culture tells you this, it's wrong because all cultures are wrong, and they cannot, they cannot solve it. So the, the you know, the, the the prophets of this culture, the Al Gore's, the Greta Thunberg's, who don't who don't say anything that's even remotely backed up by mainstream science, you know. So if you go away, you know, read the Working Group papers, they don't they don't say we're going to have a global climate catastrophe. It's a cultural narrative. Then we should not believe those narratives, and we should not believe that uh, elite. And um, you know, those those um, pyramids are still there. When the Spanish first invaded, they're so large and they were all grown over. They thought they were they thought they were hills. And eventually they realized they were man-made. So they're still there from an old, an old climate change uh, culture. <laughs> All right. I'm going to do the best I can to read part of a paragraph from your book, because I think it's a uh, very key. Uh, you're talking about the crazy climate uh, policies, et cetera. And you say these are not the result of a hoax or conspiracy or delusion or greed or mental flaws or mendacity or nefarious intent. Uh, but they do not arise from rational processes either. Instead, they are ultimately a function of emotive reactions deep within our subconscious. Such reactions are typically felt both passionately and honestly. They are also completely and utterly normal. You want to talk about that? That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, that's that 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 sort of philosophy has caused me a lot of grief in uh, because, you know, it's very tempting for, for people to think what's happening now is not normal. Well, you know, but but it is. It's, it's happen, happens throughout the whole of history. And um, although hoaxes and conspiracies and greed can, can ride on the back of cultures, as I said earlier, they they aren't causal. The, the, this, the cause of this is something way bigger and way more harder to stop. And it's these emotive behaviors in us. And so, the narratives um, appear, they're emergent. The most emotive ones get told more, so they, they get more and more emotive. And then they switch on these hot buttons, and those hot buttons bypass rationality. So that's why it's not, the, the main cause is not, um, it, it's not mendacity, it's not greed, because the, the, the most of the people who believe, the vast majority of people who believe, they believe in honesty, honestly. And you can see it in their eyes from loads. A lot of these passionate climate people, you know, that they, you know, or the, the just stop oil guys on the street or whatever, they absolutely believe it. They, they completely believe it. they're not lying. And that, that is true of most of the elite who are pushing it as well. They don't, you know, they, you know, Figueres or whatever his name is, didn't come out with climate is boiling. He may, he may think I'm exaggerating a bit, but I'm on the right side of history. I believe this. He's not lying. He's believing and it is way worse to, to fight believers than liars. You, you know, for liars, all you gotta do is point out they're lying, right? <laughs> End of story. You, that's no good with believers because they don't, they, don't, they believe their, their belief. And they think that anybody who's attacking that belief has got to be zany, you know? 
But the thing is, they're not zany either. It, this is a thing that all humans do. It's happened forever. And it's a bypass of our rationality for strong beliefs. Um, and unraveling that strong belief is really, really difficult. But it's actually, um, a, um, it's the wrong target to think, right, this is all deliberate. It's all a conspiracy theory. These people plan this whole thing from the very beginning, you know, start with the Club of Rome and so on. Yes, the Club of Rome happens and so on and so forth. These, these were the early days of the culture when it was seeding itself. Those people didn't deliberately say, oh, yeah, by 30 years, I'll be able to have stock petrol cars or whatever. It, it didn't happen like that. It's, it's, emer it's an emergent phenomenon, and it carries everybody with it. And the, the, the people who were starting it, they believed in all the previous generations of memes. So they believed in all Paul, Paul Ehrlich's stuff, you know, and um, at, at one stage, quite a few of the believers quite literally moved from, we're all going to die for climate change because it's cold, like Stephen Schneider and so on. He was literally a, a, a warrior for the, it's going to be, you know, an ice age. And he quite smoothly transitioned to be a warrior for global warming without any apparent hypocrisy at all. And that's because these things aren't rational. It was, it's, it's the belief system, the belief that humans are screwing the planet that's, that's the problem. It, it, you know, the climate, climate catastrophe is, is, is ultimately quite a, an anti-human uh, religion, if you like. And so it's not that the, you know, the, some of the early climate conferences didn't set out some rational things. The problem is the culture is in charge of their rationality. So they can do apparently rational things, but the cultural drive is upstream of their rationality. So, so they're, they're doing intelligent planning. It's a bit like Joseph Goebbels, who had all this, all this stuff. He was one of the greatest propagandizers ever, obviously. Yeah, if you read his diaries, he, was, he, he literally said, I'm in love with Hitler. I love Hitler. And the thing is, he believed, he believed it all himself. He believed whatever came out of Hitler's mouth. So, so he's using his great intelligence to, to, to figure out how to advance the narrative and make it better. But he's doing it because he believes in it, not because he doesn't believe in it. It's not, it's not hypocritical in a, in a conscious sense. It's only hypocritical in the sense that it defies reality. Uh, let's see, without saying anything that's going to get my channel deleted, can you say anything about what happened in the last three years with uh, COVID? And uh, was it, could you consider that a culture that rose and kind of fell already? And does that have any relevance to what's going to happen to climate, maybe waking people up? to uh, science that can uh, be bad? What do you think? Um, there, there are some useful lessons that, that, that are across both domains, but, but the COVID thing wasn't a culture in itself. Unfortunately, cultural instincts aren't the only ones that could bypass our rationality. And there are other big ones that can do it as well. And one of them is that animal, a lot of animals socially distance. And it's, really, it's instinctive and, it, and it's, it's severe. You know, they'll do it to the point of not, you know, not saving their colleague animals, uh, you know, if they're going to die from something. Well, they would have, when, there was, when social distancing wasn't in place, they would have saved them and they won't. You know, they can even kill the ones who they think have got the disease. And it's instinctive. These animals aren't, aren't rational. They haven't sort of seen on the telly and heard the prime minister saying, well, we need to, we could stay indoors. You know, they, it's a deep instinct. And I actually think just because we, we've got a veneer of civilization, we have not left that instinct behind. So I think rather than the initial thing happening being cultural, then I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that we are so we, we socially distanced as animals. And I think you can, you can see that by looking at all the polls 
you know, a lot of the governments, including our own, weren't originally going to do any of the things they did. They had they had a plan, and that plan had, had quite reasonable things in it. But as soon as the pictures on TV came of the Italian hospitals overflowing and people dying in the corridors, and the whole population became afraid, then <clears throat> then it wasn't the government locking down populations unwilling. It was the government doing what the population wanted, which was desperately to do more and more to to stop stuff. And so I, I you know, I think you, you can see that all, all the way through the story because this the distancing will only unhook itself again when people stop being afraid. I, and I haven't bothered to check the polls now because it, it it's kind of gone now. But back even at the, at the beginning of this year, sort of February time, January time, then the majority of the UK population still well, I think that lockdown was the right thing, a big majority, and, and they'd be happy to do it again. Um, you know, maybe we've moved on from there, but that just shows you, because at that, you know, last January, February, we already knew a lot about how inappropriate a lot of these things were. But I think what happened is the, the social distancing instinct set off a chain of events. But what actually happens after that is that cultures, you know, especially as, it's, as, as, the, as the social distancing thing is ramping down, and governments, governments have plunged into it because it's an easy way of virtue signaling and they seem to be doing the right thing. Um, uh, you know, and all the media were, were stoking them on to lock down more, lock down more, or, you know, why, or why did you go on this train when you could have killed people? You know, it, it's all, it, you know, what actually happens then is cultures start to think, they look at the long game. For instance, climate catastrophism, which at first, they, the COVID thing probably harmed it, but cultures are extremely good at taking... Uh, opportunistic things like COVID and turning it around and say, okay, wow, you know, now maybe I can make use of all these, all these distancing things or all these special rules because they were brought in for COVID, but maybe the culture can use them. And cultural positions adapt. So obviously in, in America, particularly the left will much so put their put their wagon onto the on, onto the COVID measures and 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 the uh, and the and the right typically resisted more. So cult, cultural positions then take it up. But I don't, and I, and I think there is a there is a lot to be learned about how the science can go wrong, and and a lot of it is cultural, but in the later stages because the culture adopted positions. But I think the first thing, the first flame, the first fire, I actually think that was just animal social distancing. Okay, let's see. Andrew Monford is your editor for this book, right? And he wrote a yeah. really good uh, article called "Climate Change is a Doomsday Cult." that threatens us all. So I'll put a link to that in the show description. But one thing he wrote in there is, uh, most adherents of a culture have never even read the core texts around which the culture has formed. You want to uh, expand on that at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's he's uh, referring to, um, for instance, the Bible for Christianity. I mean, even back in the day, the great majority of the population hadn't read any of it. I mean, they, they sat and listened to it a lot of in sermons and Originally, it wasn't even in English, so they certainly couldn't couldn't understand it then. And even as it, as it was translated to English, they might know a few popular snippets and in, in hymns and what have you, but they they have no idea what the you know what what the core tenets of the of the narrative actually is. They you know the, the justifications, if you like, that's all that's all shrouded in mystery, if preferably. The culture likes to shroud stuff in mystery. That's why it took so long to get the Bible written. You know, in English instead of Latin, and it was only when uh, when Henry VIII and whatever decided we were going to have our own brand of religion for political reasons that we we make any progress on that. <laughs> and um, and in the climate case, um, similarly, 
you know, none of the, you know, if you go out and ask a just stop oil guy or, or whatever, whatever, you know, what was it all about? What, what, how, how much carbon dioxide is there? When, how much is it going up? What, what is the damage going to be for this amount of fuel we're going to burn? And none of them will have, have a Scooby, as, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that translates, but they, they will, they will not have any idea. And then, they, they're only taking the culture as its emotive face value, like, you know, we're all doomed and we've got to do this, this and this to stop being doomed. They have, they have no clue what their, their core tenets is, the, the equivalent of the Bible. is. is you know, I mean, I don't, I don't even know you can point to the equivalent of the Bible because if you point to the IPC version group papers, they actually don't say there's going to be a catastrophe. I think the equivalent of the Bible is, is more... The um, I'd say it's the press releases of the UN and the presidents, and uh, so in chapter five, there's a whole load of, of quotes from those guys, which are complete catastrophe narrative quotes. Uh, you know, and, and there's all sorts of variants, like no planet B. You know, that's a no planet B. Well, it physically means there's no more there's no more planets than planet Earth. It it's not emotive, but what it really means for anybody in the culture is like there's no planet B. When we're fucked, we can't move to it. And, oh, I don't know why you might have to edit that out. <laughs> um, and um, so you know, the so I guess the Bible is really the collection of those those quotes, the collection of uh, um, the prophets like Al Gore, the sayings of Al Gore, and uh, the sayings of Greta. I, I guess that, but but even you know the more complicated stuff, you know how you know even even at the level of the people who believe there's a, a problem, but still bow to some of the science. I don't think any of the ordinary believers have the first idea. Um, about any of the science at all. Yeah, Andrew Monford said in that same article, a statement of belief in the climate catastrophe narrative is therefore not a rational considered opinion. It is simply a way of signaling to other people that you are a member of the climate club. And it sounds like what I have also concluded, there's enormous amounts of groupthink involved here and almost yeah. no rational person could look at the evidence and say, oh no, uh, the weather's getting worse and the CO2 is the reason. So I... Do you agree that, uh, could you call it some of this group think as well? Yeah, a culture, I mean, a, a great way to think of a culture is like, uh, is like group think writ large. It's monster group think. I mean, I, I usually do it the other way around. When I, when I talk about group think, I say it's culture writ small. So group think, you know, you can have a group think in your local tennis club maybe or something, you know, the committee won't let in, you <clears throat> know, this and that sort of person. So a culture is like, it's like group groupthink on a on a galactic scale. It's like it's like it's groupthink with a billion people, and um, uh, so so indeed it, it is. Um, you know, the, the, your statements of belief, um, the, and the whole idea, the whole reason for these narratives existing from our evolutionary past. The only reason they exist is to keep everybody in a group. So that's their job. Their job is to keep everybody in a group. But if you if you say everybody's going in a group, there must be an out group. So you, you can't define a group without having an out group. So there's a boundary around the group. And everybody inside are those who say the right things and do the right things. So I believe the planet's going to die unless we get rid of fossil fuels. I believe this, I believe that. And that's what Andrew meant. It's like this, this statements of beliefs, they're just your flags to say you're in the club. And anybody who doesn't say those things is automatically out group. And that's what the group does. It has to, because you can't get group benefits. Because the group benefits are your survival. You know, people in the past, you might not get fed if you didn't believe in the church or something, you know. <clears throat> and <clears throat> they might get killed if you believe in the wrong religion. 
but but you can't access the group benefits and the group doesn't want you to access the benefits unless they know that you're sound so you've got to put your hand up and say i'm sound i believe in this this, this. and then you're in the club and the guys who don't put their hand up and say that or, or raise a perfectly legitimate question well it doesn't matter whether the question is rational or not it's irrelevant and it just it's not it's not a group question we don't ask those questions and and that's why none of it is is rational it's it's all about are you in the club or are you not and I think some extreme versions of this, you can actually get heresies deep inside the club. Sometimes if the heresies get too big, the club might split in two. It's not happened for climate catastrophe yet. But for instance, Protestantism and Catholicism split. Um, you got quite close to a split on nuclear. Because at one point, um, uh, uh, is it, I can't remember her first name, Oreskes. Um, Naomi, right? Naomi Oreskes said that... Um, uh, um, uh, James Hansen was uh, a, a different kind of climate denier because he believed in nuclear. And, you know, that's, that's the sort of level of which you get of the, the, the irrationality of this stuff. You know, she, so she's put the label on him. She doesn't like nuclear. She's more, she's in the millenarian, very millenarian wing. He's only in like past millenarian wing. You know, he actually thinks you could solve it. <laughs> and so that's why these labels are planted to see who's in the group and who's not and to keep the group tight. And, uh, and, you know, we have a word for that. We, we call it singing off the same hymn sheet. And the reason we use that phrase is because that's, that's, that was literally how it happened for the religious cultures. If you weren't singing the same hymn, you weren't in the right group, right? So you can't go around singing any Catholic hymns anymore. Once we split off and got our own branch, you've got to sing Protestant hymns. And so at the moment, most of catastrophism is singing the same hymns, but there's a, there's a sort of discordant bunch who are quite fancying nuclear, and um, that, that could lead to a schism. <laughs> In your book, a lot of times you mention something called innate skepticism, and I think I'm seeing that in basically everybody because basically no one can be bothered to live as if they actually believe that CO2 emissions are going to kill their kids. So yeah. do you want to talk about that uh, innate skepticism? Yeah. Yeah. This, um, I think this, this is one of the – most of the stuff in my book is not original. You know, I've, I've, you know, I, this stuff comes from other people's research. I put it together. The, the one thing I, I might have brought to the party that's a little bit different is innate skepticism, because um, <clears throat> um, mo most people think that if you if you disbelieve a culture, then it must be because you believe in a different one. So you so you don't believe in dem lib culture because you're a, a rep con person, right? But it but it's not necessarily the case that 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 can happen but there is also a, an instinctive distrust of any any culture so if you didn't believe in any culture your default your default skepticism is on so um you might you might disbelieve in stuff even if you don't believe in its opposite you don't it's not that you're, so you're not disbelieving it because you believe in its opposite you just disbelieve it because you can detect it as a cultural narrative and how people and so how people detect that is really interesting so uh, an analogy is um, people know how to detect liars. There's an endless war between uh, an evolutionary race between lying and detecting lies, lying and detecting lies, going up and up and up. But people kind of know. So, and, you know, it's, it's nowadays it's studied, of course. So people hit, see about it on, on, on the movies and the FBI checking out liars. And, <clears throat> and so, you, you know, the people sweat more while they're a bit nervous or their hand might shake a bit. Or their, or their eyes twitch, uh, or they don't look at you. You know, they're looking over here. Yeah, this is really true. <laughs> and, 
and you know, or and all these things get worse if they're given some other cognitive task that occupies them. Then they've got they've got less cognitive ability to try and control their their, their signals, and they and they leak out more. So when you're trying to detect a lie, you you often give them a task to do, and then then run the questions by them. And it gets worse because they they get more twitchy. So these <clears throat> the interesting thing about these signals that you can use to detect somebody's lying. I mean, if, if it's a professional liar, you know, it might, it might get past you. So you could have false, you, you, could, you could not detect it, and you might get false positives too. But you have got something, and you can use it statistically to pick out liars more often than not. And But the great thing about this is you don't have to have any knowledge whatsoever of the subject being lied about. So, you know, somebody might be lying about... Um, <clears throat> a rail timetable, you know, <laughs> oh, this train goes here, whatever, you know, and you, you, you don't know anything about it, rail timetable, but you can still tell they're lying because they have these signals. And so the innate skepticism is the group level version of the same signals. So, <clears throat> so detection of individual lying, so an individual is detecting an individual lie. At the group level, an individual is detecting a group lie. So it's still an individual at the detective ends. He's still and he's still got his clues to do it. But the deception is now a group deception. The group deception is, is the narratives that cultures put out that are always wrong. Remember, I said they are always wrong. If it's a group deception, it's always wrong. And so the the, the way you detect them is you can't use the clues for individual lying because the people are, are believing it honestly. If they honestly believe it, they're not lying. And this is another reason why we know most people aren't lying. They don't have the slightest symptoms of lying. In fact, they look usually like they've found, you know, the greatest passion of their life or whatever. But but there are signals, and the signals are: is is the um, is the consensus too rigid, too perfect? Yeah. Does it brook no argument whatsoever? So you can't ask even relevant questions. Um, you know, uh, there's this, uh, the list of them in the book. Um, and I can't remember the list. <laughs> There's a couple. There, there are some more. And effectively, you know, is this thing too certain? Is it is it unquestionable? Those those sorts of things. And if people instinctively see those, they know it's a culture, because only cultures do that. Unfortunately, it, it can occasionally misfire. Because one problem is that a scientific consensus, which is true, not because it's a, 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 a um, an agreed consensus, it's because you can do the experiment anywhere in the world and it's true, um, then it looks to some people, if your values don't align, then it looks to some people like a cultural consensus and that's when people disbelieve science wrongly. So innate skepticism can sometimes be apt, it correctly detects a culture using these clues, and it can sometimes be inapt in which it incorrectly de detects a culture. And the, and the thing is made worse because sometimes correct science so like when we, you know, when we colonized Africa and places, then we pushed correct science about medicine and so on, but we pushed it as a heavy, as a part of Christian culture. So a lot, a lot of it was rejected by the natives, not because they thought that the medicine was bad, but because they detected it was being pushed by a culture. So that's the case where you've got correct science wrapped up in a culture. Somebody who is innately skeptical of that is actually aptly innately skeptical. They correctly detected the culture even though correct science was in the middle of that culture somewhere, but they correctly detected the culture and rejected it. And, and most of the, just like most of the belief across publics in, in climate catastrophism is emotive. 
then most of the disbelief is innate skepticism. It's instinctive. They know it's a culture. They can they can see it's a culture. And that's another reason why you get these big switches between unconstrained questions where they, they might believe it. But when it goes to reality, they think, oh, I'm not deeply in my alliance for this culture is only shallow and I'm pulling out when it gets deep and they, they switch. And it's because what's happened is in the, in the unconstrained question case, if, you know, if their religion has a, an alliance with climate catastrophe, then you know, the Pope says we're all going to die because of climate change. So that's enough to have a shallow alliance. And so that actually disables their innate skepticism. So when they see an unconstrained question, they don't have innate skepticism because the Pope's told them it's cool. But when it switches to a reality constrained one, then their real heavy values, the, the things they really believe in, start to matter. Innate, innate skepticism depends on what values you have. And those religious values mean they're going to be innately skeptical of a competitor. And that's why it changes completely between the two. So I, you know, I, I hope I've brought something to the party with innate skepticism. I mean, most people don't really have, most people think of skepticism as being rational. I mean, if you, if you, you know, Mike Shermer, head of the, uh, Skeptic Society has, you know, often has statements like um, science and skepticism are synonymous. But unfortunately, that's got bound to lead to conflation. If you've got, you know, if, if the vast majority of skepticism is in fact instinctive, then, you know, that is really going to confuse things. And I, and I think most people are very confused when they see people being skeptical. You know, they think, well, they're, they're either, you know, they, they might confuse it with rational skepticism or they might confuse it with belief in an opposing culture, but it could be neither. It could, it's just instinctive skepticism because you've, you've twigged the clues. Okay, we're coming up on an hour here. Do you have other things, other points you'd like to make before we finish up? Uh, no, no, I think you've, you've covered the ground pretty well. I, I think the, the one I struggle with is what the hell are we going to do about it? <laughs> um, you know, but I, I, I guess maybe the, the only thing I'll say is if we don't, if we don't understand what we're facing, you have no chance of defeating it. it you're, you're, you know, uh, the, G, the, the GWPF, for instance, the, the wonderful guys who published my book, I'm eternally grateful, but they spent a lot of years forging the science, you know, like arguing about the science. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with the science. It hasn't been anything to do with the science for decades. The culture has a life of its own and it's going where it's going. And it's not, you know, you need to fight, you need to, the way to fight it, I think, is to is to make clear as as the you know the, the cost of fuel these days and things make clear reality. Cultures do not like reality. You've got to force reality in its face, and it's the it's the downstream things, the things that actually happen. It's nothing to do with climate science, and you and you're fighting the wrong thing if you think that. What you're fighting is a religion, and you have to use the same tools to to that you might use to fight a religion. So I think that's the one thing I would say. You, you've got to be fighting the right thing. All right. Very good. Thank you for doing this. Andy West, I will talk to you next time. Fantastic. Cheers. See you later. Bye. Bye.